What an express privilege it is to be known by God. That He would take note of us and desire to make us His own, adopting us into His family. As a son or daughter of the King, let me remind you of something tonight. He knows you. As a son or daughter of the King, He knows you. The battles that you're fighting, the anxieties that you're facing, the loneliness that you're feeling, the changes that you're fearing, the God of all creation knows you as His son or daughter, and He is for you. So, for whoever needed to hear that as we get going tonight, be encouraged and uplifted. The God of all creation knows you. And what an express privilege that is for each and every one of us that have been brought into his family. Philippians chapter 2. I need you to meet me there tonight. Last week we introduced ourselves to a new series that we're calling Mind Your Manners which comes out of Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul states, Only let your manner of living be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, make sure that as citizens of heaven, you're behaving as citizens of heaven. So turn to somebody beside you and just give them a reminder real quick and tell them, Hey, mind your manners. Mind your manners. Manners, please. So we're diagnosing and discussing the characteristics that need to be evident in a life being lived in a manner worthy. And Philippians 2 is going to help us out with our next one. So Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, God's word reads, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Many years back, there was a phrase that got coined in relation to real estate and property investment. And so I asked four friends, two of them who are actual realtors, if they could finish this phrase for me. There are three things that matter in property. And all four of them knew the answer to be what? 
location, location, location. Location is vitally important. As a matter of fact, most of you will find, if you haven't already one day, when you go to invest in a house of your own, that as you are looking, when somebody makes you aware that they have found one for sale, more times than not, your first question is going to be, where is it at? Location is vitally important. Why? Because that's the one thing that can't be changed. Location is what it is. You can't pick it up and move it. That's exactly where it's at. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So for the sake of subject tonight, I want to amend that phrase to this. There are three things that matter in manners of gospel living. Humility, humility, humility. As gospel people, our lives ought to be lived with a manner of humility. Out of all the manners that we'll discuss in the following weeks after this, I believe this one is likely the most difficult to mind. Why? Because it is so opposite from our selfish, prideful, natural tendencies that we all carry within our fleshly nature. Hence the reason for the repetition of the title, humility, 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 because it's something that we have to constantly be reminded of. So let's check out what a life of humility exhibits and how we can grow our humility manner. If we're going to grow in this manner, then there has to be an understanding of unity. Go back to the beginning of the chapter in verse 1. As Paul continues writing to the people in the city of Philippi, he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit... Any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So Paul pleads with these people to be unified with each other. As a matter of fact, the verse that sets the theme for this entire series, Philippians 1.27, we've only been looking at the first half of it. But look at what he says in the bottom half of that verse. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So Paul says, complete my joy. In other words, the one thing that would make me happier than anything else is for all of you people who call yourselves sons and daughters of the king to be unified with each other. It was extremely important that they understood unity was a major factor in them living a life that was worthy of the manner of the gospel. And so Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, even himself made unity the central theme Oh, that prayer. Listen to what Jesus prays in John chapter 17. I'm going to jump around in the chapter a little bit. We're going to start in verse 11. Jesus, as he's praying to the Father, says this, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And skipping down to verse 20, Jesus continues praying. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly 
one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. It was imperative to Jesus that his people exemplify unity amongst each other. He says, as a matter of fact, this is one of the key elements that will testify to the world around you of the reality of Jesus and who he really was and what he came to do is when they look at this body and see a supernatural unity that isn't seen anywhere else on the landscape of this earth. What exactly did they want us to be united in? In the message and the mission that only Jesus can save and it's up to us to spread. But listen, unity doesn't come without sacrifice. And sacrifice doesn't come without humility. So when we piece that all together, it takes humility to have unity. People will never fully agree on strategies. People will never fully agree on principles. People will never fully agree on methods or ideas. There will always be varying preferences or opinions or thoughts or expressions, but we can agree on the mission to be carried out. Listen, you don't have to see eye to eye to be unified. And I feel like over time we've kind of perpetuated this false narrative that everybody has to like everybody at every moment in order to have unity. Paul had an argument with Barnabas while they were getting ready to go on a mission trip. He also had a confrontation with Peter over the manner in which he was choosing to live his life. They didn't always see eye to eye with each other. As a matter of fact, on various occasions throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus' disciples having arguments amongst themselves over stupid, idiotic things. They didn't always see eye to eye, but they were always unified on the mission of carrying the Gospel. You may not like everybody in this room. And I promise you that not every single one of us are going to always agree on every single thing that we do or how we go about doing them. I there is division in this room right now. you believe me? Do I need to prove it? Let's do a survey. <laughs> it's a participation survey. So I want you to raise your hand with the one that you want to go for. All right, let's see if we got division in the room. Alabama or Auburn? Let's see Alabama. Let's see Auburn. House divided. Let's try it again. Hamburgers or nachos? Let's see, hands for hamburgers. That's fine. Hands for nachos. House divided. Let's try another one. Spring or fall? Hands for spring? Hands for fall. House divided. Let's change up a little bit. Bieber or Swift? Hands for Bieber? Hands for Swift. House divided. <laughs> Nike or Adidas? Hands for Nike. Hands for Adidas. Mexican or Italian? Hands for Mexican. Hands for Italian. House divided. Let's try one more. Leading people to Jesus. 
or pushing people from Jesus. Hands for leading to, hands for pushing away. House united. We may not always agree, but we can still be united in the mission. But it takes humility, humility, humility. It takes making a choice sometimes to push down your idea or your thought or your preference or your strategy. But we can be united in the mission when we truly understand that it takes humility to have unity. But if we're going to grow in our manner of humbleness, there's also got to be a curbing of conceit. So go back and look at verse 3 with me. The first half of the verse, Paul challenges them. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Everybody say conceit. Paul encourages these believers to do nothing in a selfish or conceited way, especially when it comes to gospel service. This is one of those lifelong battles that we face as followers of Jesus. It's that ever-lingering temptation to be driven and to operate out of selfish motives. That's why it has to be curbed, held back, kept under control, bridled, because we're always inclined to do and choose what provides the most benefit for us and makes us look the best. We see Paul use the word conceit here, but the the literal word is this, vainglory. And vainglory means to show excessive or ostentatious pride, especially in one's achievements. This has absolutely no place within the manners of how we're to be believing or how we're to be living as believers because the state of abundant life that we live in and experience was not brought about by our achievements. That's why we keep that cross hanging over the center of the stage. That it may be a constant reminder that the salvation and the abundant life that we had had nothing to do with anything that we did, but it had everything to do with what Jesus did when he allowed himself to be hung on the cross. On top of that, I got to tell you, you need to be aware of something. You need to be aware of something out there that I'm calling a conceit catcher because it is always catching people and their conceitedness. You know what it is? Social media. Social media has to be the epitome of vainglory of people being caught up in their own prideful selves and their own selfish ambitions and their own achievements. But listen to this, especially when it comes to Jesus stuff. I'm going to say something I don't know that I should necessarily say it or not, but we're just going to trust that God's going to use it anyway. We just got done celebrating Easter, and I got on social media, and I got to tell you, there were so many people that all of a sudden had this newfound passion for Christ on Easter that I had never seen before in their entire life. It was amazing. I was like, I had no idea there were so many of these devout believers in the world. 
I'm not trying to get on a rant or anything like that, but I'm trying to prove a really, really pertinent point. You need to curb your conceit, but you also need to mind your motives. I'm all for social media. I've got it myself. But you need to mind your motives behind the things that you post on there, especially as children of God. There's nothing like the old mission trip selfie with a poor kid from a third world country that can barely even put shoes on his feet. What was your motive behind taking that picture and putting it on your social media so that people could see that and like that and applaud that because you went and did something? Because you sacrificed a week out of your summer to go and do a little bit of work with a missionary that's been on the field there for 15 years sowing seeds? Mind your motives, men and women of God. Curb your conceit a little bit. We talk about being good stewards of time and energy and resources and finances and giftedness. We talk about stewarding that stuff all the time. Can I add something to that? Steward what you share. Be responsible with it, in other words. Let me leave you with one last thought that I think will help you to curb your conceit if you're struggling with it a little bit. If you are never applauded for the action, would you still be satisfied in the serving? If we're going to live a life of humility, then we've got to curb the conceit that so often wants to well itself up within our lives. But then there's also got to be a shifting of significance. Go back and look in the last half of verse 3. Paul tells them at the beginning, don't do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit. And he says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. So Paul exhorts them or he encourages them to count others more significant than yourselves. In other words, the amount of attention and importance that you place upon yourself, don't equal that. Exceed that in the importance and significance that you place upon others. Paul demonstrates a great example of this. He's in prison, remember? We talked about this last week, how as Paul is writing these things down, he's in chains in a prison cell. In all likelihood, he wasn't even able to actually write these down with his own hands. While he's sitting in the chains, he's actually saying these words to a scribe who are writing them down for him because his hands are chained to the wall and he can't do it for himself. And as he's writing these things down, he's in prison, but he's focused on his people. He should have been thinking of himself as a top priority of importance. Paul shouldn't have been writing and telling them these things. He should have been writing and telling them, hey, you guys do whatever you got to do to get me out of this stinking place. I'm in prison for crying out loud. Do something. Go post bond for me. Go and talk to the judge. Don't somebody have a connection with some of the Roman guard? Do something that you can get me out of this prison cell that I'm in. But that's not what Paul is writing and telling them to do. He's trying to, to write and tell them, hey, don't be conceited. Don't be selfish. Count others more significant than yourself. You know what Paul just did, right? He wasted his one phone call. You get one, right? Paul wasted his phone call, or so it seems. Most of us would probably think so. But he was more concerned with their lives and their welfare. He couldn't ask for a a better example of counting others to be more significant than yourself. What would happen if all of us took the significance that we placed upon ourselves and shifted it in an even greater proportion onto the people around us? Where we started becoming more concerned with the battles they're fighting 
where we became more concerned with the hardships that they're enduring, with the encouragement that they need, where we became more concerned with the love that they desire to feel, where we became more concerned with the depression that they can't defeat, where we became more concerned with the scars of abuse that they carry. I believe that significance shifted would lead to significant shaking of our homes, our families, our workplaces, our campuses, and our communities for the glory of God and the salvation of souls. So in humility, ask God to help you shift your significance onto other people around you. But then if we're going to continue growing in our manner of humility, number four, there has to be an increasing of interest. Go back and look at verse four. As Paul continues writing, he says, Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Paul understood that everyone has a natural ability to look out for their own interest. Nobody in here, I don't have to stand up here and teach you guys how to look out for yourself. I don't have to teach you, I don't have to give you some five-step program of how to do things that would benefit you the most. Everybody in here has a natural ability to look out for their own interest, but a person of humility is someone who takes an interest in others. This is completely counter to what the world tells us to do and the mindset that it seeks to develop, which as I was thinking through this reminded me of what Julius Campbell said to Gary Bertier and remember the Titans. Remember what he said? I'm supposed to wear myself out for the team? What team? No. I'm going to do me and I'm going to get mine. That's not the mindset. That's not the lifestyle that we're called to within the family of God. Living with a manner of humility means that I increase my interest in the lives of brothers and sisters around me. And I seek, watch this. Man, I would love to see this happen more often within the context of believers. It's that I seek to elevate instead of eliminate the call of God on other people's lives. That's what living with a manner of humility looks like in the arena of increasing my interest towards other people. I'm so tired of out of selfish ambition and pride, men and women of God canceling the calling of other brothers and sisters in Christ because we are so jealous or envious or contempt over the things that God chose to use them for. We of all people should put our hands to the backs of the brothers and sisters that God has placed before us. And if he desires to take them to a higher platform, then we're the ones behind them pushing them to it. Seek to elevate, not eliminate, the call of God that he has placed on the lives of the people around you. Take an interest in what God is doing in and through their lives. Take an interest in the lives of the people that you rub shoulders with casually while you're on campus. 
Take an interest in the lives of the people that you rub shoulders with each and every day. Watch this. When you're at the gym, but you never bother to take out your pods so you can have a conversation with somebody. Take an interest in the lives of other people when you're at your family gatherings, but there's that one cousin that you got into it with about seven years back and you decided that you're never going to forgive the things that they said or did to you or about you, take an interest in their lives in the fact that Jesus died for their soul as equal as he did for yours. And have a little humility and realize that grace received needs to be grace reciprocated and reach out. But it takes, you get it, humility, humility, humility. Paul understood in the midst of writing all this that he was describing a very, very rare kind of living. Calling people to live united in an unselfish way while counting others more significant than self as well as being genuinely interested in their lives isn't normal living. Would y'all agree with that? Nothing about this just feels natural for us as human beings. It's a supernatural life that Jesus has called us to. So Paul, understanding that while he writes this under the inspiration of the Spirit, then gives us this theological gem in verses 5 through 8 that highlights Jesus as the ultimate example of humility to follow. And I want to show you how he lays this out. Look at verse 5 with me. In verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Listen, no one was more unified than Jesus the Father and the Spirit. Paul says, Have one mind among you. Have your mind in Christ Jesus. Jesus was the epitome of being unified with his Father and with the Spirit. Then he goes on in verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus, as all people, was the farthest thing from being conceited. He was in the form of God. He was God. God incarnate. God in the flesh. But he did not consider equality with the Father something to be grasped. That's unselfishness. That's being unconceited. Then look in verse 7. As he continues rolling this out for us, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You know what a servant does? Elevates other people above themselves. Shift your significance. Jesus put a higher significance on the people that he came to serve than he did himself, even though he was the very son of God. And then in verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? Because his main interest was not himself, but the people he came to die for. You need an example of humility to follow? You can't find it any better. Than Jesus. One last thing, and then we're done. If we're going to continue to grow in living with a manner of humility, then there has to be an adjusting of attitude. Skip all the way over to verse 14. Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That just has to be one of the worst pieces of Scripture that any of us could ever have to deal with. We got any grumblers in the house? 
This is a participation question too. Any complainers? Any liars? That ought to cover it. <laughs> grumbling and complaining, man. It's, con- it's something we all battle. Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Have you ever gotten humbled before? I prided myself on never doing dumb stuff in public. I know I've shared this story before and some of you have heard it. But my senior year, we had cap and gown pictures in the gym. This man right here graduated with me. He knows what happened that day. <laughs> He'll be laughing for the rest of the night. I prided myself on never doing anything stupid in public. I had made it all the way throughout the course of high school without having any one single embarrassing moment. Cap and gown pictures in the gym. 8.30 that morning. We're sitting on the bleachers. We have our pictures taken. When we get done, we're headed back to class. I take my gown off. I throw it over my arm like that. And we're walking across the gym floor. And as we're walking, I'm talking to somebody not halfway paying attention. Well, on my right foot, I step on my gown. And a nice slick gown in between my foot and a nice waxed hardwood basketball floor isn't a very good combination. So after I step on it on my right foot, it slides out from under me, but I catch myself. I'm like, whew, saved it. It was close. I was this close to biting it. And I turned around. This man was walking right behind me. I turned around and I said, whoo, that was close. Went to take my next step. Didn't know that after I had slipped, the rest of the gown had wrapped around the front of my right foot. Go to step with my left foot, step on the gown again. The next thing that hit the ground was the back of my head. 108, 110 people in our class busted my butt in front of every single one of them. It's humiliating. It's humiliating to get humbled. Now, I've always focused on the command of verse 14 without realizing the reason in verse 15. Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing verse 15 so that you may be blameless before a crooked and twisted generation among whom which you shine as lights in the world I told you last week people are always watching it's humiliating to get humbled agreed but as people of God It's humiliating to not be humble. Let's go back to remember the Titans for a second. After Julius said what he said to Gary, Gary responded back, see man, that's the worst attitude I've ever heard. To which Julius responded again, attitude reflects leadership, Captain. Our attitude should reflect a life of humility to the world around us. And it's humiliating to the name of Jesus when we don't live with a manner of humility. Adjust your attitude. Because it's being lived out in front of a twisted and crooked generation that's watching your every move. And when we choose to live without a manner of humility, 
humility, then it is humiliating to the Savior that we serve. A manner of life worthy of the gospel of Christ is one that's lived with a manner of humility. Gospel people, I told you last week, are confident people. But gospel people are also humble people. So men and women of God, please mind your manners. Hey, this is Trey Mitchell, college and young adult pastor. I just wanted to say thank you for listening. It's our prayer that God uses these messages in a way that challenge and encourage you to live for His glory. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus as your Savior, we would love to help you with making that decision. Just reach out to us through our webpage at underwoodbaptist.org. Be sure to check back in with us next week as we again encounter God through His Word here at Life.